0: Welcome to part two of the Indigenous Wellness episode. In part one, we introduce our guests and discuss holistic care, power dynamics with patients, and traditional medicine and medicine people. We recommend listening to part one before listening to part two. In this episode, we delve into the principles of trauma-informed care. Okay, we're gonna shift gears a little bit. Um, Jazina, your amazing work on... The how we're going to provide culturally safe care to Indigenous people really focuses, and you've already mentioned it today, on trauma-informed care. So in today's podcast, we just can't take a deep dive, but I'm hoping we can just kind of focus around the four principles of trauma-informed care and, and quickly chat about all of them. So the first principle you mention is your work in your work is to be trauma aware can you tell us what it looks like to be trauma aware?
1: Yeah. And I love talking about trauma informed care. You're right. You talk about it forever. So we'll keep it as concise as possible. But for me, obviously, I always tell people you can't be trauma informed without being trauma aware. How are you going to know what is what without knowing? And so I think society as a whole, and from what I've you know, I'm, t- I talked to some of the old people in my community, they see a big change now, a lot more people are trauma aware, they're aware of the different colonial system, the legacy of colonialism and residential school, 60s school, you know, it gets a little more iffy when we go to contemporary issues, you know, like the child welfare system, or different sort of land claims and things like that. But in general, I feel like society is becoming more educated about these different things. And I think when we're becoming trauma aware, it's a little step further to realize that those incidents and those policies, that is what has contributed to the trauma of communities. And so realizing that it's a specific cause and effect, that it didn't just come up by genetics, that it didn't just come up randomly, it was designed and created that way for this impact on our communities, it was made to be that way. And so I think when we look at really being a trauma aware, we take it from, you know, being knowledgeable about the issue, then starting to realize the connections to trauma. And then we go even further when we recognize the connections between trauma and health. And so then we start to see, OK, well, recognizing that having trauma in your life or trauma in your community or intergenerational trauma does, from a Western evidence perspective, cause a decrease in health outcomes across the board. And so we look at, you know, shorter life expectancies or more incidents of substance use disorder or We have different words, but I think the last I heard is the word like, you know, risky behaviors. I think we've probably changed it to a different term now. But it's just the idea of, you know, a higher incidence of um, STBBIs and different things like that. And so it's kind of this this realizing that trauma and health is a direct pipeline from colonial practices. Tammy,
0: your thoughts on trauma awareness and what it might look like for pharmacists, pharmacy technicians and providing trauma-informed care?
2: Well, first of all, we talk about the term trauma-informed comes up quite a bit, right? I look at uh, the, from a patient perspective, the experiences and relationships that are there or not there, many have with the healthcare professionals, right, is very complex and riddled with trauma. So we have rules and policies with that concept of one size fits all. And that's applied for public health orders. And so there's preconceptions and expectations. You know, as we go to school and um, we learn all these things and the things that we're learning are from a Western or colonial perspective and doesn't always take into consideration how we, as indigenous population um, were before colonization, right? Uh, we need to understand the importance of trauma-informed approach and starting with the patient. When we talk about the patient is um, their un- understanding of their condition, um, what kind of medication um, they need to take is key because you're having that communication, right? And and on from the flip side of that is having a voice feeling included in decision making and no no i am heard can be very helpful in improving health outcomes right it's a matter of for the individual is to be able to be heard so i under, i'm we're able to start building that relationship and i know you're listening then i'll be more forthcoming in terms of accepting whatever advice you say but don't label me as non-compliant because I'm not understanding what you're saying. You need to take that time to build that relationship, right? And guarantee once you build that relationship, it's there for life. You know, you just need to um, learn to treat that person with respect uh, and not discriminate. Right. So we talk about racism, all that in, in the healthcare sector. And because of our, our history, because of what we went through and i'm speaking from experience we don't trust easily and and so you need to start slow understand respectfully um to build those relationships
0: i'm going to think about this a lot with all of my interactions once you build that relationship it's there for life like how important it is to build that and once you've got it you've got it like just what a gift. Hey, so it's worth taking the time. I was just thinking the same thing, Kelly. I I was, I, and you know, I just
3: provided the greatest segue, Tammy, because, you know, I love that idea of once you have it, you have it for life. So let's get back into the topic that Jazina speaks about in the second principle uh, for safety. Uh, and trustworthiness. So uh, for pharmacy professionals, we need to be intentional, obviously, about cultivating safety in every one of our interactions with patients. Now, Jazina, specifically to you, how can a pharmacy professional create an inclusive, safe space? And then also, how can we apply this to our colleagues that are working in hospital pharmacies where they're not necessarily in a patient-facing role. So how how does safety and trustworthiness play into these parts?
1: I always say that without this component, there's nothing else. There's no other parts of trauma-informed care without the trust. And Tammy's kind of alluding to that, this idea that once you build that trust, you can move on to the other stages of, of a healthcare journey with your patients. Without the trust, they're not talking to you, they're not staying, they're not accessing healthcare. And then we see this cycle of people who have really poor health and they only present when they're in a health emergency. Instead of coming to see us as kind of proactive healthcare accessible, healthcare professionals that we pride ourselves on being without trust, then we have a whole population of people who we're actually not accessible to. And so when I always say there's so many different ways for trust and accountability with our patients. And I think it really comes back to this idea that we keep talking about holistic health and wholeness. When you go to a healthcare interaction, are you going to trust a doctor who doesn't look at you, who doesn't know your name, who looks at your chart as soon as you show up, can't remember what you were there for. That's not going to be someone you're going to trust compared to a doctor you go, who knows your name, who looks at you, who seems to be knowledgeable, who knows your chart, remembers the little things you said from last time, that is going to be a healthcare professional, you will subconsciously trust more, because that person shows you that they care that you're a person. And so I think when we look at health, obviously, all of us care about other people as people, I just think, part of that sterilized environment of healthcare is that we almost have to pretend like there's a barrier between us. I'm the healthcare professional, you're the patient. I care about your health, but only in a professional capacity. But really, I think that really doesn't do us any benefit. And when we look at trust, then that's something for my patients, you know, I remember their names, I remember what they tell me, I don't wear a white coat, that's part of this idea of trust. I think it makes it easier to trust somebody when you reduce the power differential. And so we talk a lot about making healthcare spaces to reduce the power differential, like not having such high counters, or having uh, counseling spaces or having posters of diverse people in your workplace, like those are all ways that we just signal that this pharmacy or this place or this person we are trying to push the bounds of a sterilized patient pharmacist only interaction and I think that those are all the different ways that like I was talking about before when you bring your whole self to work I think that really subconsciously allows patients to trust you because you are showing up as someone who's relatable. And there's actually a lot of evidence that shows that when somebody receives health care from someone that they relate to, that the health improves. And so work on building this trust, these connections, like Tammy is saying, consistently day after day, we show our patients that we are listening, we care, we see them as more than our Ramipril patient, our diabetes patient, you know that we see them as People, I think that and not only seeing them as people that we see ourselves as people interacting with them. I think that those are all ways that we just consistently build trust. And also too, like, there are some patients who it took me over a year for them to trust me. And it's just it was just happened to be the most consistent thing. Every time I saw them, it was the same kind of non judgmental you know, caring, compassionate healthcare. And I think a lot of of, um, my colleagues already provide healthcare like that. I think it's just really recognizing that it takes time and also recognizing the importance and recognizing like Tammy was saying, Somebody who's not Indigenous, maybe they'll trust your health recommendations right off the bat, because even if they don't trust you, they trust the healthcare system. And so, because of that, there's an extra degree of trust that is just granted to you. And that's why we have governing colleges. The public trusts healthcare professionals. That's why we need laws so that healthcare professionals don't abuse their power to a trusting public. When we look at Indigenous people, though, we don't have the benefit of that trust of the system of a trusting public that trust was broken and broken purposefully with purposeful actions and so i think we like you're saying kim to be intentional like intentional about building those connections again and building that trust and recognizing that if this person doesn't trust us there's no there's no other place we can fall back on they don't trust the healthcare system either and so the first steps that we have to do is to be able to at least develop trust here, but also recognizing that even if they trust you, that trust may never extend to the entirety of the healthcare system. And so really just recognizing there's so many more steps. And if you even look at trauma in general and the effects of trauma, on a a holistic kind of perspective. The effects of trauma include the decreased ability to trust people, decreased trust in self, community, others. That lack of trust is also a symptom of trauma. And so, you know, it's so complex. We have the symptoms of trauma that is saying we don't trust people. These systems that have been built for people to not, Indigenous people to not trust them. And healthcare professionals who Expect the trust of the public and get really frustrated and confused when we don't have that. Why isn't this indigenous person following my recommendations? Every other patient has no problem. Well, every other patient trusts the healthcare system, and so I think that that's really where we have to look at. Like Tammy keeps saying, what is the other reasons? And to not take it personally, it's it's most likely not you. It's most likely that person's experience and trauma is stored in the body remembered in the body it's a visceral reaction it's something that when we go slow and steady and we build that rapport and we build that support that's so important and I always say like you have no idea what being one person that this person can trust can do for the rest of their entire life that's what I mean when it's like our interaction Our interactions are small, but they have the potential to affect somebody lifelong because we exist in a power differential with patients. That means we can either replicate what other relationships have looked like or continue that traumatic cycle, or we can help break the cycle for entire communities, entire people by saying, I care about you as a person in a position of power. And I think that is just so important.
0: Two things that we, uh, this is such a good reminder, can't expect trust. We need to earn trust, earn it. And Jazina, I love the idea that, that I as a healthcare provider can help contribute to breaking generational cycles. Like that's a really powerful thought. So thank you for that. Tammy, do you have some thoughts on, you've already given us this, right? What feels safe and how we can provide safety, feeling including. Yeah.
2: I just wanted to add, um, also understanding that in your encounters with the, with the patient is that, you know, what they're going through, personal and social risk factors are at play, right? And notice that everyone is unique and avoid the pitfalls of unconscious biases and stereotypes. Speak out when you as a professional is seeing this occurring. Um, let's not um, enable it. Um, by doing this you are showing people a new way of working and it changes the workplace culture, right? And from a bigger picture, it's also important to raise awareness of the needs of the community. You're working as a community pharmacist, so you should be aware of your surrounding, what's happening, what's the health and social landscape within that community that you're working in. Um, And also um, when community leaders, you know, like they're the ones that lead the communities. Uh, note that there, there's a need for support. Um, you're building that trust. Um, they're understanding that they can rely on you. Um, so that kind of builds that, uh, a partnership with them, right? Also being able to talk about if um, you see patterns in prescriptions within the community you serve, and how can we work together in addressing them. And why I say that's important um, is when I used to manage our, our, our clinic, the physician, I worked with so many different physicians and um, <clears throat> one, and this was in the latter part of the 80s, early part of the 90s, um, we had a physician that always overprescribed, and um, I had a big concern about that and uh, prescription drug abuse, double doctrine, all that came up. And I would often have conversations with the, the physician, but the attitude he had was because we're an indigenous population, he was serving, we were not important. I'm the physician, I'm the one that knows what I'm doing. I said, Yeah, but I see what you're doing is harming our people, right? And um, so had to kind of take drastic steps and call the College of Physicians and Surgeons to deal with that. And also with the talking with the pharmacist, you know, why is this happening and all that? So as a result, a lot of more standards and restrictions were put on physicians and that which was great. And any time um, the patients had a concern or wanted certain kind of meds, getting addicted to some of them, I would take that person with the pharmacist and we would sit and talk about the dangers, the risks and all that so that the person would understand right so my focus was always on really good outcomes for the patient it wasn't about me anybody else it was about that individual I just thought I'd bring that up um, in in my experiences this is how I was able to work with the individuals
1: I mean it's so great I'm so Happy that we're able to have this discussion because so much comes up I think when we're talking about this together, and I have always said that it's so arrogant to believe that one person could have the solution to indigenous health or being a better pharmacist or being a better person like that we have so many people in the world and from an indigenous worldview nothing is done as an individual and I think that western society places so much of a focus on an individual same way about what I was talking about before like our mental health individual responsibility emotional health individual responsibility like physical spiritual health is an individual responsibility and so I think that these kinds of spaces where people are discussing about the issues and talking about it, like that is where we co-create a better healthcare system. Um, And you had mentioned before about hospital pharmacists, and I had forgot to talk about it, but I have worked in the hospital before. Um, I worked in Northern Alberta hospitals, and then I also had a few different placements. I worked at the psych hospital in Pinocchio, the Centennial Center for I think it's mental health and brain injury, uh, something like that. But community pharmacy is much less threatening than a hospital environment. And I think even non-Indigenous people find the hospital to be very intimidating. You know, it's so big, it's so sterile. There's so many people, there's so many sick people, there's so many devices. Everything about it looks completely different than the rest of our lives, especially for non-healthcare professionals. And so I think that we really have a responsibility to remember, again, that trust is earned. And so I think I've seen so many times in the hospital where there's Indigenous patients who are uncertain about services, who are uncertain about medications, who don't know if they want to access these things, and they'll be labeled as a difficult patient. They'll be labeled as someone who's denying health care. On their charts, so it will say, refuses service. And so they just get labeled as somebody who is a difficult person. And I think that that is like, I talk a lot about this kind of concept in other spaces, but it's the idea that Indigenous people aren't allowed to make mistakes or have bad days if there's something that happens like that like a bad day then and say your bad day is a day you're in hospital you're sick you feel horrible everyone has bad days in hospital but the difference is an indigenous person when they have a bad day in hospital they get labeled as a a, a difficult patient and that's something that will stay with them through their admissions, their future admissions, the treatment that they receive from all healthcare professionals. Healthcare professionals suddenly will not approach them with an open mind. They'll approach them expecting a difficult patient. If 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 you are going to everyone has bad days. And if it's the day you're having a bad day and you have to go to the pharmacy or you have to if you're in the hospital or if to do whatever and you have to interact with other people and you're like, "Oh my gosh, like I don't want to talk to anybody. I just want this to be done, whatever." Like I think for other people, we can be like, oh, they're having a bad day, like whatever. But I, I've seen it so many times with Indigenous patients where they just think it that's a reflection of the person. And not only a reflection of the person, but a reflection of an entire people. And I think that's where Tammy keeps talking about these unconscious biases, that we don't give Indigenous people the same benefit of the doubt. And that is something that, honestly, I've seen almost exclusively towards Indigenous patients I do not notice it with non-Indigenous patients in the same incidents. And even I've, I obviously hear horrible things too in hospital about people will say things, um, you know, they, we have all of our person-centered language, like saying alcohol use disorder, a person with alcohol use disorder and things like that. And I have heard doctors and recently in the last few months be like, oh, this patient left on pass on the weekend. They're probably just drinking because they're an alcoholic. And I'm like, okay, this person has alcohol use disorder. I'm like, are we looking at treatment for them on the weekends? Like what is going on here? And looking at it still from a health perspective. But those are the kinds of ways where those assumptions are so quick. And when we really take a step back and we look at where we place assumptions quickly and where we don't, then you might start to see a pattern that Indigenous people have been saying repeatedly is happening. And I think that that is really big in, in hospitals. And, you know, I've seen situations where two patients have almost identical history. And we'll say like, you know, about 20 years ago, they both had issues with substance use disorder. So they had opioid use disorder and it's, it's past, it's in remission. Both of them have got surgeries. Both of them are in hospital. But I witnessed this, the non-Indigenous patient received adequate pain control. The Indigenous person did not and they would only receive proper pain control if they started on Suboxone, even though they've been entirely in remission from opioid use disorder for the same period of time as a non-Indigenous person. But the non-Indigenous person, the assumption was they made a mistake. The Indigenous person, the assumption was it was their fault. It's from their personality. The Just the assumptions give no room for benefit of the doubt. And I think that's where we start to really, to me, Once we recognize that we're aware of that, once we work to build trust, once we start to speak up in different healthcare environments and say, I think this person is in remission from, you know, opioid use disorder, you know, maybe we, they can have different kinds of pain control, like really just speaking up for things because that patient didn't want to start Suboxone. They said, I don't use opioids. Why would I start Suboxone? I don't want to restart this medication. That's something from my past. And that person went days without adequate acute pain control because of that. And so it's just those situations are way more common than we think. And I don't think that because it's very uncomfortable and sad to recognize that those things happen. And I just think that if we can be brave and recognizing that all of us have likely seen situations like this and all of us in those situations no matter who you are myself included have not known what to do in those situations when we work on the idea of like we're here as a collective we want people to be healthy we want them to experience health in the way that makes sense to them we care about it and we want to be able to do that together I think it can give us some bravery in those spaces that are really daunting Because systemic issues affect all of us. Even if it looks like systemic racism only affects Indigenous people, it affects all of us. And it really, as a whole, makes society worse off than it could be.
0: Mm -hmm. That collective again, hey, that collective thought. Okay, And thank you for the reminder that our assumptions can lead to real harm. Jazini, you've already given us some examples about how we can make our physical environments, whether it's community, hospital, pharmacy, let, feel less threatening and safer. So you mentioned our white coats and what the white coats might represent. We, you would mentioned lower encounters, things that um, we could do to our physical space. Tammy, do you have any other thoughts or things that you've seen in pharmacies that might make them feel less threatening or safer?
2: Like a lot of examples have been brought up, um, I just want to say that my my knowledge uh, in terms of hospital pharmacy not um, there's not a lot of uh, patient pharmacy interaction because um, everything uh, flows through the nursing staff, right? And um, and but what I do know uh, is that there's a lot of negative conversation that goes on, right? You know, I I have to say that, um, again, this is how we speak about our patients, right? When they're not around, um, this matters a great deal. It plays a huge role in how folks are treated in person. So if you're talking about me behind my back, imagine how you'll treat me when we're face-to-face, right? Um, so it, it's important to act always as if um, the patient can hear you and will read your chart in whatever you say about me. Um, instead of being negative, try being positive, being an advocate. Yeah? See their strengths, speak with uh, empathy, compassion always. The person's in there for a reason, right? And it shifts everything from the ground up and holds everyone accountable. There's been reports of being ignored to death for Indigenous people, how they're treated. Um, and I know um, how a lot of times health professionals get really upset, a person's discharged and then they're readmitted. It's a cost on the healthcare system, the resources, etc. cetera. But what you don't understand is you haven't taken the time to understand the demographics within that community. I don't have after-hour care I don't have weekend care. So when the person is discharged during those times, they're going home without any supports in place, right? And this was a really big um, issue that happened within our Treaty 7 area, our region in Southern Alberta. Um, I had that opportunity to work with the Regional Health Authority back then and created their um, discharge protocol manuals and to have a better understanding and and, and the presentations to all the hospitals, First Nation communities, all the health professionals, and it really went well. And um, a lot of times when I go into the communities, I still say, hey, I'm still using your document. It's still really important. But you know, just working together um, is really key. I think we um, should be really show that respect, right? And, and truly, if you want that person to get better, then treat them with respect and be, be there for that person as an advocate, right? In the same vein of
3: respect, many healthcare professionals, they're not really sure how to respectfully ask a person. And Jazina, you kind of touched on it. You don't know by looking at somebody what their situation is, but how can we respectfully ask a person with their treaty statuses when we're going to fill a prescription for them? What would be good wording or what could healthcare professionals use in this situation?
1: Yeah, I think my first question is, though, is like, eh, where would you need this information, right? Like, that's the idea. I think that I feel so grateful that we have so many healthcare, healthcare professionals that really They do care about how they're interacting with Indigenous patients. And I think that sometimes, though, there's just an expectation that because you're learning more about the area, because you want to be able to help with Indigenous health, that indigenous patients should come to you still because even learning how to respectfully ask that doesn't mean that you'll know because indigenous people historically has been unsafe for them to identify in the healthcare system and unless you have a clear reason about why you want to know where you're going to use the information and what they're going to get out of it there's no way that would capture everybody and that's the same thing and when you're coming into hospital More often than not, if someone identifies as Indigenous, it comes with real harms and absolutely no benefits. So that's kind of the discussion is like, okay, if there are benefits to identifying as Indigenous, say some hospitals have extra Indigenous programming, extra resources in community, extra things that we can offer them, and that's what happens when they identify and that's what we're worried about like somebody falling between the cracks and not accessing the services that are there for them then that's totally reasonable to say you know do you identify as indigenous because there's extra there's an extra treatment program available if you do but it has to be so clear about why you're asking and what they get from it because i don't think there's any way you could respectfully ask an indigenous person if they're indigenous Because not because of how you're asking it, not because of you, not because of where you work, just because historically and presently, that question is a dangerous question for a lot of people. It's not so much about the wording, but about the use and the intention and being so clear about what you need that information for. So say like if someone has NIHB and that's what you need extra coverage for. First of all, Indigenous people know that they'll get medications with their NIHB coverage, right? Like usually you're not explaining to somebody who has their status that they can get medications through their status. So even then I don't, I don't know though. They could have be it could be different in other practices. I, I've definitely experienced like uh, uh, I try to
3: word it like, hey, do you have any third party coverage or do you have anybody who covers your medication? And you know, sometimes I'll get the answer, oh no. And it's because and just like you're saying, Jasina, people that have the status, they already assume that, you know, that, that's going to just come with the territory, I guess. Right. For lack of a better word. So I guess is there like if we were going to word it, say, wh- how would I go on from that conversation to say, hey, are you an Indigenous person that's got treaty status? Is that kind wording or what would be the wording that we could use in that situation where we just need that little extra push?
1: I think it goes back to kind of like the generalizing. So instead of thinking about NIHB, let's think about federal drug plans because veteran coverage goes under the same thing. And that's just as hard and annoying to access (laughs) compared to different territorial coverages that we have. And so I always try to generalize something to soften the question in ways that is like, okay, well, you know, a different third-party coverage. And you say some people have, federal coverage like if you are indigenous or a veteran and that's that and because then it's like it could be any person and you might actually catch more people than you think maybe even more veterans who knows we are making it so it's like there's a reason. the reason is it's federal coverage and that applies not just to indigenous people but everyone who has federal coverage and I think when we explain the reasoning and it's not just like just because I want to know because I just want to like, it really allows us to explain what we're doing and why. And I think that's kind of along the train of thought, I think, of what you were asking about. But yeah, asking about federal coverage is a really good like segue,
2: yeah, I think so, um when you talk about, especially if you're going into the hospital, you're admitted, whatever, You're filling out all this information. A lot of um, the health institutes or clinics, whatever, ask for your health care card, your insurance, right? And um, it's always, um, I always, and I never get offended about it. Do you have any other coverage? Say, well, I'm treaty and, you know, provide that information, right? You're not being disrespectful to me. Um, And also, and and why... um, for me, it was always, um, I'm not saying we go out and say our treaty numbers or whatever, but self-identify But it was so important when I worked in the clinic, when I was the manager, what I saw was a lot of, there's a lot of struggle within the communities and, and um, parents didn't have coverage. Their children were not, I guess, registered. and And so it had an impact on them. Having to pay, which they couldn't because of the poverty level within the communities. So I would advocate, you know, we need to have this child. I would talk to the insurance. The insurance was really good working with me. Six, they had six months to a year to have their child registered. So this way it's not a burden on them, financial burden. I would explain with the family, I would go to our membership, you know, or phone whatever membership and say this child needs to be registered this is what's happening you know and um so work that that system right uh and ensure that the child um had that coverage and there was no any financial burden on the family for something they couldn't afford to pay right
0: great tammy
2: thank you for adding that
0: so we were talking about the principles of trauma-informed care talked about principle one, principle two, third principle, choice, collaboration, and connection. I think we've chatted a lot about collaboration and connection kind of throughout the podcast. Anyone that wants more information, we can post Jasina's articles that she has written on these principles. I'm going to go to the next principle, and it is empowerment and strengths focused. And, you know, when we're thinking about power differentials, when we're thinking about supporting people, when we're thinking about connections, um, and Jazine, I pulled this quote, it said, and pharmacists, pharmacy professionals should act as facilitators of health and recovery instead of controllers of it. So how can we do this? And how can we move to this empowerment and strengths focus and even tell us what that looks like? Because for many of us, you know, I, what does that look like?
1: Honestly, when I think of my favorite of the principles, I feel like when you get to a place where you can empower your patients, you've done a lot of work to be able to get there. And I think for me, it looks like the idea that you not only care for every of your patients health and wellness, as we all do, but you're able to express it in a way that. Patients can see that, but also feel encouraged and motivated by that. They can feel moved by your compassion, kind of what we're talking about earlier, how really we can completely break cycles for some people by being Trusting and empowering healthcare professionals. And so this looks a lot like reframing the ways we think about things. Obviously, there's a lot of talk about things like deficit based language, the fact that we focus on the deficits of Indigenous communities, the deficits in health incomes or health outcomes, compared to looking at the strengths of Indigenous communities. The idea is that we have this holistic visions of health and we have intergenerational family structures and we have really the focus of importance on children and all of these other things, really connection with the land, like those are all positive and strengths-focused outcomes. I think just as a whole though, the healthcare system is deficit-focused for every person. Like we really have a deficit focus. When we start looking at strengths focus in a, in a day-to-day practice, to me that just looks like being a cheerleader for my patients and really being able to meet them where they are after having deconstructed this idea that they have to be any other place than exactly where they are to receive care and good care from me. I think that is what the idea is, is that we meet every patient where they are. And we see that as valid. And we see that as valuable. And we respect and we honor their journey and their place in their journey. And so it could be something as simple as say, like, Even patients who come in every day, for example, they've got daily methadone therapy and they come in every day. Wow, that is amazing. Going somewhere every day is so hard, not to mention that when you're starting out on opioid therapy, opioid agonist therapy, you're withdrawing, you're detoxing, you're feeling like absolute garbage, you probably have very unstable housing, the effects of substance use disorder extend into your relationships, you're probably having to rebuild relationships, all of those things that make it so difficult, and they still choose to show up every day to see you. That is like, wow, instead of believing that patients could do more and should do more, we just assume that what they're doing is the most that they can do for their health. And that is how their health journey looks for them. And so if they want to move it forward, if they want to move it in different directions, if they take steps back, it's the same as all of us. They're human on a healing journey and we don't need to expect perfection from other people when we don't expect it on ourselves, right? So I think that that really plays into the ways we think about empowerment and strengths focus. When we believe someone is showing up for their health with everything that they have and they believe it's important to themselves, Or if they don't believe it's important that there's a reason why, and that's the place that they're at. When we believe those things about our patients, then that looks like empowerment to me. And I think that it's how I feel at work in this idea that like, I love being able to interact with my patients. I love that they're here to access care with me. I always say that if I was a pharmacist and pharmacists didn't have patient interaction, then I wouldn't be a pharmacist. I would be something else. And so it's just this idea that we are cheerleaders for our patients. And that idea of being a facilitator of recovery, we are just there to help them on their health journey. There is no person in this world that knows more about your health journey than yourself. And that is true of every person and nobody wants to feel like their bodily autonomy in all areas of their health is controlled by somebody else. And I think it's just like a really disconnect when healthcare professionals know that we don't want that on ourselves but we subconsciously act that way towards our patient. And that's remnants of, um, you know, this paternalistic system of healthcare and all of us are a part of it and all of us operate subconsciously within those remnants. And I think once we recognize that and we just realize we don't need to control someone's recovery because how will we know what recovery looks like for somebody? How would we know what healing, what health looks like for somebody else? That's saying basically that your creator, that your God, that you know about someone's entire health journey and their entire everything, like nobody can know that. And I think that also for me, when I started to really get into that, I'm like, oh, that's so relieving. I don't have to know everything as a pharmacist. Oh, it's such a relief. I can just be the best that I can be in this moment. And that is all I can do. Like there's, there's no way to do more. And I think it's that same idea when you believe your patients are showing up every day with the best that they are showing up. You can believe that about yourself as well. And it's really just this idea, like when we dismantle systems that affect our patients, those systems affect us in the same way behind the scenes. It's just harder to recognize because it's always easier to focus on another person. This is my favorite concept principle of trauma-informed care is when we get to empowerment, because to me, like you were saying before, Kelly, like this is that collective envisioning of a future where you know people are living in a better harmony with each other whatever way that looks like whatever place they are on their journey.
0: Tammy what does empowerment look like
2: for you? So I look at it as for from a patient perspective to have that um, ability to make a choice and and as a health professional uh, your role is to have that individual well-informed so that they make an informed decision, right? And understanding that at some point the person may have encountered some at some point trauma and and how uplifting um, their self-esteem, building that up by empowering them to be able to make a decision. That's so important. You know, a lot of times, and you know, with our history and all that, we never were given a choice, right? You know, and, and then the way Western way of looking at things, you're in a relationship or something, someone's making all those decisions for me. I'm not able to speak on my behalf, but if you're giving them, empowering them to make that choice, then you're, you're showing them that they're important, their voice matters, right? So that's how I look at things in terms of empowerment and work, truly work, Truly working with that individual in terms of your relationship building, right?
3: How can our listeners as pharmacy professionals, how can we start to become allies in Indigenous health? What ways can we start to be allies? We've talked about advocating. Now, what does allyship look like?
0: Especially for, you know, some of us that might not have the day-to-day interactions, right? Like, yeah, allyship is such a big part, I think, of all of these conversations, is what can we just do as humans?
2: <laughs> sure. The way I look at it um, and from our conversation and all that, um, it's quite simple. Um, having that cultural humility, understanding trauma, being trauma-informed, Understanding it's not a one-size-fits-all, and basically treat people the way you want to be treated. So just putting it uh, simply.
1: Yeah, tiny yourself it up perfectly, and I think that it always comes back to really simple concepts, right? Indigenous health looks the same as all other health. We provide diabetes care the same to any person, and you know I think that. When we look at becoming allies in our workplaces, in our professional spaces, in our lives, I think it just goes beyond the idea of othering, right? Like an Indigenous worldview believes that everybody is interconnected, that, you know, everybody comes from the land, returns to the land. I mean, obviously there's different... Uh, variations depending on which nation and culture that you come from. But I think it's removing the idea that there's some sort of difference between us. The difference is that there has been a whole bunch of mistreatment of Indigenous people. And if that happened to any other person, they would be in the same boat. And so I think it's just recognizing that the reason why things look the way they do in Indigenous communities communities is from decades of treatment that other people did not receive but if they did it would look the same and so we're really all in the same boat kind of operating within these spaces and I think just doing what we can do every day and being mindful that other people's experiences look different than us and being open-minded because even still I learn a lot from my grandparents from my elders and I also learn a lot from people in other spaces it's the idea that of humility, like Tammy was talking about, is every space I show up as a learner and also as a teacher, because the idea is every person has sacred knowledge and knowledge sharing is very important within communities. And that extends to everybody, really, we all have sacred knowledge to give other people and everyone has sacred knowledge to give to us. And I think so it's just humility, when we can recognize that we have a lot to learn and we just stay committed to being humble learners no matter where we
0: are. Okay, so there's another beautiful thought is that all of us are both teachers and learners. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna take that with me too. <laughs> yeah, that's getting written down right here, <laughs> teachers and learners, all of us. Okay, so normally we summarize and do takeaways I really actually love the way you answered the allyship question, but Tammy or Jazina, if you want to offer a takeaway, Kim, I'm not sure if you have one or two key points. Like I had tons of them all the way through. So I've got
3: a whole piece of paper written down with takeaways here. Well, I just, I just really want to thank both of you for being here. Honestly, I have so many things written down here. My, my main takeaway, the first and foremost, Tammy, when you said cultural humility, that really struck a chord for me. And that's going to be something that I'm going to start to implement more into my practice It's just this idea of humility. And, and I I just really love that phrasing. And then also, uh, I'm not too sure who said this, but I think it was when we were talking about empowerment and it said showing up every day. If you show up every day, you know, to to bring your best self, that is a form of empowerment for other people. And I, I really love that. And I think that's a, one of my main takeaways is just show up every day with cultural humility and be a learner and also a teacher and expect that things aren't going to be perfect as you said Jazina, but you can just bring your very best.
0: I'll leave the last words, Tammy, with you and Jazina. if there's anything else that you wanted to add.
2: Uh, really just to thank you for ha- um, having me on here. And, and as you said, we're, we're teachers and learners. Um, I am quite a bit older. <laughs> and so I bring to the table um, a lot of what I learned from earlier on. And um, she brings a more younger perspective. So it's a real good fit. So I learned some from her and hopefully she learned some things from me and thank you. Hand to heart.
1: Yeah, thank you. And our communities will say, hands raised, the idea that we're lifting up this other person that we're receiving knowledge from, we're lifting up this connection, we're lifting up this relationship. And so I'll just say, hands raised, thank you.
0: Tammy and Zina, thank you. You have been so generous with your experience and your expertise. And I am grateful for the conversation that we had today. So thank you to both of you. Thank you to everyone that's listening today. We appreciate your commitment to learning and engaging in this very important conversation. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pharmacy Perspectives, Providing Safer Spaces. Our podcast hosts are Kelly, Kim, and Ryan. This podcast is a joint project created by Alberta College of Pharmacy and continuing professional development for pharmacy professionals based out of the University of Saskatchewan. Our producers are Mary Fraser and Pamela Timminson. Editing was done by Anwen Dyko and our music is by BJ Cat.